John 11, 47 to 53, die for the children of God. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and all and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to give us understanding from this scripture about your purposes, your purposes to work through the persecution and the evils of men to accomplish our salvation, that there is nothing that can contradict and undermine your will in our life, your will as displayed in the life of Christ to purchase our redemption and to gather into one the people of God, the children of God scattered abroad. Lord, give us confidence, give us faith, show us from this portion of scripture that you are indeed in full control and that you use even the wicked counsels of evil men to accomplish our redemption. You will succeed and therefore you will guarantee and assure us of eternal life. You will bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This last part of the chapter, chapter 11 of the book of John, has to do with this conspiracy, this plot to seize and to kill Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. These people who convene the council, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, the chief priests and the Pharisees, as it says in verse 47, they are among the group of verse 46 who heard this report after Lazarus Lazarus was raised from the dead, verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now that they know what Jesus had done, a good thing to help Lazarus, to help his sisters and all the loved ones, they now plot evil against Christ. Christ did good. Now they are plotting evil against him. 
Some or many in verse 45 did believe, but not everybody. There were plenty of those who did not believe. And that's where we pick it up here in 47 to 57. For now, our passage treats this subject of Jesus on purpose, deliberately, according to the will of God, he will die for the children of God. Jesus will die for the children of God. His death is for our salvation. And it also shows in this passage that no matter what evil men do, in their plots, in their schemes, to undermine the will of God, to undermine Christ specifically here and our salvation in Christ, it will not succeed. But God will use it. He will even use the evil intentions, the evil actions, the evil deeds of evil men to bring good, to bring about our salvation. He will be victorious and we will be victorious in him. Let's explain in greater detail 47 to 53 and then learn a few lessons from it. Firstly, in 47, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Now this council is known as the council or known as the Sanhedrin. The council or the Sanhedrin comprised of the Pharisees who were laymen, typically laymen, and then the chief priests, the Sadducees who were typically from the tribe of Levi, and specifically from the family of Aaron. These are the two main components of this council, the leadership, religious leadership of the people of Israel, established from ancient times and now here are present and convening this council, this meeting in order to plot against Christ. That's why they meet. And they have a concern here in 47. What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. They see that their leadership, their power, their authority over the people is being taken away from them. They are worried about their own power. They're not worried about the truth. They're not concerned about the truth. They are preoccupied and anxious about losing their power. What are we doing? We haven't been as successful as we need to be to make sure that all these people don't slip out of our hands, out of our grip, because we enjoy it. We love it. We like it. We have their respect. They follow the things we tell them. We have their money. We have influence over them. We can do whatever we want. That's why they are anxious. That's why they say, what are we doing? They look, they look around at each other and discuss whatever is happening. And also, they acknowledge in their sin, notice, they acknowledge in their sin that this man, Christ, is performing many signs. They are indisputable signs, indisputable miracles. These are miracles that they know for a fact are happening for the benefit of the people who receive those miracles. They know that. There is no dispute that Lazarus was raised from the dead. No dispute. You could publish it in the biggest newspaper in the world 
or even today now, in the biggest website, biggest news source in the world, no one can dispute what actually is happening. That's the way his miracles were. Many of his miracles were that way, including the most recent one, Lazarus. They don't dispute it. But in their sin, in their blindness, in their zeal to do evil, they don't see the purpose of the signs. They don't see the source of the signs. They don't see what the signs signify. They don't see the redemption. They don't see who Christ really is. They don't see that Christ was really sent by God the Father. They give lip service to God the Father, but they deny God the Father because they deny His one and only Son, the Christ, Jesus Christ. They deny Him. Their blindness won't let them see the good that's before their very eyes and appreciate it for its very purpose. Verse 48, they continue to speak. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. If we let him go on, which means they think they have the strength, they think they have the intrigue, they think they have the resources, the power, the weapons, the people, the thugs, the mobs. They think they have whatever it takes to control what happens in the life of Christ. Don't they realize? They don't realize that this is not ultimately in their hands. It's in the hand of God, in the powerful hand of God. God is the one who has sent Christ into the world and who gave him authority to perform the many miracles that he has performed and even to preach the words that he preaches. It is God the Father himself. Look at this. If we let him go on like this, as though he's doing a lot of evil, right? He's not doing a lot of evil. He's helping so many people and teaching them so many truths, correctly interpreting the scriptures to the people. And he's an honest man. He does not speak in flattery. He does not speak in deceptive words. He speaks forthrightly. He speaks honestly. He speaks truthfully. They know that about him. They even admit this about him in Matthew 22, 15 to 22. They admit this about him, that this is the way he is, because they had one of theirs approach Christ and say, we know you speak the way of God in truth, and you defer to no one. They said that to him. They know he's telling the truth. But they don't love truth. They don't love the right way. What do they desire? They desire the attention and the flattery. They in, uh, desire the indulgences of all men, which means a lot of men. When they say all men, they don't mean every person in the world is going to believe in him. They're using a figure of speech that there's going to be a lot of people, perhaps all the people of the nation, all of the Jews. Eventually, he's going to convince more and more people. Of course, they don't mean themselves because they would never believe in him. They mean everybody else, a lot of other people, by this phrase, all men. That's what they mean by it. But they are concerned that the all men, a lot of people, will quit listening to them and listen to Christ. Do you see how they see power slipping from their hands? 
Their greed, their covetousness, their pride slipping away from their hands, that's what they have in their mind. They are concerned about that. They are concerned about righteousness. They're not concerned about truth. They're not concerned about true knowledge of God. They want people to believe in them instead of believing in Christ. They don't point the finger to Christ. They don't point the finger to the Word of Christ. They don't point the finger to the example of Christ, how we should follow Him. They point the finger to themselves. Look at me. They preach themselves rather than Christ Jesus as Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.5 They preach themselves rather than Christ Jesus as Lord. Further, they have a pretentious concern. Pretentious concern about the Romans. After all, if all men believe in him and all men want him to be their king, remember John 6.15? After his miracle in John 6.15, the people wanted to take Christ by force and make him king. So they are looking at it in merely earthly terms, physical terms, that if he has a large, a huge following, if he has the whole nation following him, then the Romans are going to come, and then the Romans are going to overthrow us. They're going to come take away our place and our nation. Take away our place. Perhaps they mean Jerusalem. Perhaps they mean the temple. At least they mean the country, the land of Canaan. The Romans will take that away and obliterate the people. There would be widespread bloodshed and exile. The nation will not belong to them anymore. Ironically, this actually happened twice. The first Jewish revolt in history about A.D. AD 66 to 70, known as the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. And the Romans did come to put down the revolt and they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the walls of Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem and exiled many of the people and massacred many of the people. That, that happened in AD 66 to 70. The second Jewish revolt, AD 132, Around, around A.D. 132 to 135, the second Jewish revolt, that's when the Romans did more damage as well. And they uprooted as much as possible all of the Jews from the land of Israel. And they said, no more are we going to call it Judea. No more are we going to call it by the ancient names of the Jews. We're going to call it Palestine. And we're not going to let the Jews live there anymore. This was the second Jewish revolt. That actually did happen. What they are fearing here actually did happen. It happened twice later in history. But Christ would not cause that to happen. What would make them think that? What would make them say that and think that? Because they thought of Jesus Christ in physical, earthly, kingdom ways. They were thinking of him only for their current physical prosperity and benefit. They weren't thinking of Christ preaching the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, even though from his own lips he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
He wasn't saying the kingdom of the earth is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. My kingdom is not of this world, he told Pilate. He was preaching like this all the time. And he refused to have the mob of his followers seize him and put him on the throne. He refused to do that. That's why he escaped many times from his own disciples to go away to a lonely place until things calmed down. That's why he did. That's why he told those who were healed on several occasions, don't tell anybody. Keep it to yourself. Why? Because he didn't want a mob formed for an earthly kingdom. John 6.15 is the perfect verse that explains that. That's why he would withdraw by himself alone to a lonely place. So, when they looked at Christ, they didn't think of him in spiritual terms and about heaven and eternity. They thought of him in physical terms because people whose appetite is their belly are concerned about earthly things. Philippians 3.19-21 and Romans 16.17 and 18. Their stomach, their belly bulges and they only have a concern to feed their earthly, physical, finite desires. That's all they care about. 49. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. On the one hand, it's good that they have people who will openly talk to each other and confront each other in a meeting. That's what we need, right? So he does this, and that's good. But we'll see that he didn't actually do this on this occasion on his own initiative. He did it because he prophesied. Because God controlled his words. God controlled his words. First, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, he was um, a high priest as well as his uh, relative, Annas. Annas and Caiaphas were high priests during this period in history. And it says here, that year, because they switched who would be high priest year by year. And here it says that year he was high priest. And that year he was one of the main ones in charge of conflicts, of controversies, of religious questions, of upheavals and uprisings. He was in charge of them because he was supposed to act based on the word of God, based on the law of God, based on the law of Moses. He had the supreme duty. We could say he was a part of the supreme court and he was the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the land of Israel. And he had a liaison, he had a connection with the secular authorities, the non-Christian authorities, or the non-believing authorities, the non-Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities. They would talk to him and they would talk to others in the Sanhedrin to make sure that there was peace in the land, to make sure that the Romans got their tax money, to make sure of things like that. That's why they were there. Make sure everything was calm and peaceful, no uprisings, and that the Romans got their money and whatever they wanted from the land of Israel and from the Jewish people. They were in charge of things like that. He was high priest, commissioned to do things according to the word of God. Now, his 
message, his oracle, is in verses 49 and 50. What did Caiaphas, this wicked man, evil man, unbelieving man, what did he say? You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. You see the quotation marks from verses 49 to 50. This encompasses his word, his oracle, his message to the council. And they should listen to him. Why? Because he's the high priest. They should take it into consideration. Not that their votes can't over, um, you know, undermine what he says, but they need to take it into serious consideration. What does he say? He says to them, you don't know what you're talking about, nor do you take into account that it is expedient. It is good. It is beneficial for you that one man should die for the people. One die for the people and the whole nation should not perish. While they are debating while they are scheming and debating with each other about what to do, he says one should die for the people, the whole nation. That is better than the whole nation dying. So in their mind, they are thinking in earthly terms, correct? But Caiaphas is making a connection between the earthly dilemma, such as the dilemma of verse 48, the whole nation might perish because the Romans might come and attack us. They are thinking in those ways, but Caiaphas is saying something, bridging the gap between the earthly nation and the spiritual nation, the heavenly nation. That's what Caiaphas means. Caiaphas said those words, but now we have the interpretation. The inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired interpretation of Caiaphas' words are in verses 51 and 52. John the Apostle, who records this, he tells us the true meaning of the words of Caiaphas. Whether or not Caiaphas and the others understood it is not the issue. The issue is what did Caiaphas say And why did he say it? What did he say? Why did he say it? How did it come about that he said what he said? John the Apostle tells us the correct interpretation. 51. Now this he did not say on his own initiative. Literally from himself. We might say from his own mind. From his own heart. From his own will from his own free will, from his own goodwill. He did not say it like that. He didn't say it that way. That's what John says. Not say on his own initiative. It didn't happen that way. Which means, though Caiaphas was a wicked man, he did not control everything he said and everything he did. He didn't control it. Who did? 51. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. 
Being high priest that year, he prophesied. We gather from Exodus 28.30, Exodus 28.30, Numbers 27.21, so forth, that the high priest, when he was in office, he would wear the breast piece, he would wear a vest called the breast piece or the breast plate, and he would have what's known as the urim and thummim, the lights and the perfections. That's the literal translation, urim and thummim, the lights and the perfections. And by that means of what he wore, he, even if he were a wicked man, would be able to consult the will of God for the people. That was one way in which the high priest, even if he were wicked, would still be a mouthpiece for God, which means God would control what came out of his mouth. And he would tell the people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear, what they needed to hear. In the same way, in this case, God, by his Holy Spirit, gave him a word, that word is in verses 49 and 50, that word to announce to the people. The Apostle John says he prophesied. He's not prophesying as a false prophet. He's prophesying the true words of God from the mouth of an evil man. We will see that there are other examples of this in Scripture. This is an evil, unbelieving man, a reprobate man who is speaking the true words of God because God made him prophesy these words. Now, the meaning of his words, the true meaning of his words, 51 to 52, that Jesus was going to die for the nation. The man, the one man he mentioned in 50 is Jesus. Jesus was going to die for the nation. But what nation? All of the physical Jews? That was the physical concern of these unbelievers in their council, right? In 47 and 48. They were concerned about the physical people, the Jews themselves, descendants, literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that what he meant? Or is that what God meant through him? No. 51. He was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He's dying for the nation and not for the nation only. The nation means, in the spiritual sense, the Jews who are the elect of God, saved by faith in Christ. 52, the Gentiles, who are the elect of God, saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles, who are the elect of God, are the one nation, or the children of God, scattered abroad. All of these words are used to describe the one entity, the one people of God, the one group, the one family, the church, redeemed by the death and resurrection of Christ, by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. 
These are the elect. So Jesus' death has as its particular, its definite, and its limited benefit for that entity, that group, that people, that family, those children, that nation. That's what he's saying here. So Caiaphas is prophesying, not on his own initiative, but because of the will of God, controlling his will, preaching the sovereignty of God in election for um, its focus on the death of Christ who will save us from our sins. So Caiaphas is preaching the truth not on his own initiative. He's telling the whole council the purpose of God, which is actually a summation of what is throughout the whole Bible. The whole Bible is teaching this very truth. We'll see in a moment examples of it. Yet, after saying it, 53 says, So, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Ironically, stunningly, verse 53 does not say, So, from that day on, they all repented because they believed Caiaphas' words. It doesn't say that. That's what's so amazing that he says something like this and they don't stop in their hatred, in their rage, in their fury to put Jesus to death. They don't stop. It doesn't halt them at all. They don't say, hey, wait a minute. Let's examine the scriptures. Let's see if we're treating him properly. Let's examine the evidence. Let's call in some more witnesses or simply we've seen enough. We've seen enough. We know enough. We need to repent of our sins and step aside and let him be the king of kings. They don't say that. Instead, after hearing the truth, they aggravate their sin. They aggravate their hardness of heart by plotting together to kill him. That's what evil people do, which confirms that Caiaphas and his council were made up of evil men who wanted to perpetrate evil by putting the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. They wanted to do that. And they will continue to plot. And we'll see that in our next paragraph. So, what do we learn? What do we learn from this? One of the lessons we can learn in this passage has to do with leadership, religious leadership, We often think that religious leaders are invincible. Religious leaders are impeccable. The unimpeachable people. They are pure. They have sincere, pure motives. They have intentions that sincerely want to help the people. People who have that frame of mind, they have what is known as sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism means that because someone holds a position, such as a religious authority, a religious official, this also happens with political officials, because they have that position of power, well, after all, since they hold that position, God must have blessed them. How else did they get there? Well, after all, they must be good. 
How else did they ascend and get to that place of power and authority? They must have been good. They must have done good. A lot of people must be convinced that they did good and are good. That's why they have that position. This is called sacerdotalism. Many people have this bent toward sacerdotalism. They believe that because they have a position of power, then inevitably they are good people and we should listen to anything and everything they say. Unless, of course, that official comes and invades your house and threatens to kill you and takes away your possessions. Then we have second thoughts. But usually people think that way. But we should not think that way. Yes, we should respect them. Yes, they have their place, so on. But we must use our minds and use Scripture to test, to examine what they're saying and doing. Let's see from the book of Malachi. Go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to Matthew and the, the book right before Matthew to Malachi. And we find in the book of Malachi, we might read Malachi 1.6 to 2.9, but I will read excerpts from it. Malachi 1.6 to 2.9 encompasses Malachi the prophet confronting the disobedient priests, the evil priests, in the things that they say and do. Now, these priests are similar, just the previous gener- a few generations before, the same ones who were in power in the land of Israel. And he's addressing them in this way. He says... Of the priests, Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father and a slave his master. Then, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You see the accusation? And then they retort, no, no, we would never do that. We're not like that. Why do you accuse us of that? And then he presents the evidence of how they were teaching people it's okay to bring uh, or blemished animals to sacrifice, for sacrifice. Verse 8, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? You see what they're doing? They're teaching the people, if you have a lame animal, a lame sheep, you have a blind sheep, you have a sick sheep, it's okay, you can bring it to the temple. I know God said unblemished. God said spotless, unblemished. But it's okay, it's okay, you can bring them here. And Malachi says to them, the priests, right? Would you even dare to give a sick and dying sheep to your governor and say, hey, governor, I really like you. You're swell. Here's a gift to you. Here's a sick animal. I'm presenting it to you. Do what you want with it. Kill it, eat it, do what you want. Would you ever do that to the governor? No. But you do that to God? The priests are teaching the people to do that to God. The priests, those in authority. Malachi says, it's better for you to shut down the whole thing. 
Shut down this whole institution of sacrifice. Don't bring another sacrifice to God. It's better, better not to bring a sacrifice than to bring a sacrifice to God in the wrong way. Don't do it. And then he puts a curse on them. Verse 14. 14. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So Malachi puts a curse on them by the word of the Lord because of, of them swindling in their actions. Chapter 2. And now this commandment is for you, O priests, if you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. What's going to happen to the priests? The blessings that they enjoy, curses will come on them. And when they have their feast days, and what's supposed to happen on the feast day? We're happy. We celebrate, right? We play music. This is what happens on a feast day. A time to celebrate will be turned into a time of great humiliation. Because when you kill the animals, you have their innards, their bodily parts, the parts that you don't eat, the parts that begin to stink, the parts that attract all the flies and the, and, the, and the worms, right? Those parts, your enemies, are going to stop your feasts right in the middle of your celebration. Your enemies will come and invade your country while you are celebrating and then take all of the refuse, all of the trash of the animals they're going to pick them up and throw them into your face. To whom? In the face of the priests. Because God is punishing them for their evil deeds. Verse 9. Uh, well, we, we'll read uh, verse 8. Verse 8. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble... By the instruction, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. They turn aside, and notice in verse 8, not only do they turn aside, they cause many to stumble. Whatever they teach wrongly, to others, many people are following them and everybody is stumbling. Everybody is despising God's word, but God will despise them. They show partiality. That is, they pick and choose what they want to obey and what they don't want to obey. They show partiality in the instruction. This sin is also a New Testament sin. It's not as though only in the Old Testament the leadership was corrupt. It's also corrupt in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul addresses the Ephesian elders, these leaders of the Ephesian church. 
a church where the Apostle Paul had visited. They knew him. It was a good church. The letter to to the Ephesians is written to this group here. Acts chapter 20. In Paul's farewell sermon to them, he says the following. Acts 20, 28. He tells these leaders, these officers of the church. 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He teaches them to be on guard for themselves and for the flock. That is, for their church, the people of the church. Because the Holy Spirit made them overseers, shepherds of the church of God. He purchased this church with his own blood. God purchased the church with his own blood. If God was so concerned about the church, you leaders must also be this concerned about the church. Why? Because of 29 and 30. I know, I know, not I might, it might happen, it possibly will happen. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There will be those who infiltrate, who enter into, who come and visit, who even join local churches, but their intention is to ravage, to destroy, violently destroy the flock because they are savage wolves. Wolves are wild animals. They love sheep. They love to attack sheep. Sheep are often not paying attention. Sheep often don't have power. They don't have discernment. But savage wolves know that and prey upon that. So this is from the outside, they come on the inside of local churches. But also, verse 30 says, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. However many elders there were, there was more than one, right? There were a few. And these men who came to visit the apostle He's saying, the apostle is saying, listen, I know among you three, I know among you five, I know among you ten, among you fifteen, who have come to visit me, that I know you, I have discipled you. But he's saying here, but I also know the fact, the reality, that among your own selves, men will arise. Yes, I discipled you ten, and you all are fine and good, you all are showing good signs right now, but there might be two or three or more of you among the ten that I discipled who will rise up, just like Judas Iscariot did, might rise up and betray the Lord Jesus Christ and attack the flock. He says, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things 
for a purpose, to draw away the disciples after them. Eventually, they get tired of pointing people to Christ and say, no, come on, we're, we're taking that too seriously. Just come follow me and you can have it easier in your Christian life because I'll preach smooth words to you and then you will like the smooth words and it'll become a better road. The road to heaven is not so difficult, so don't strive, even though Jesus said strive to enter the narrow way. Luke 13, 23. This is what they do. Even in the New Testament, even in New Testament, um, in the New Testament era, this is what happens. What else do we learn? We learn here in John 11 that God uses wicked men, but their wickedness will not succeed in undermining God. God does use wicked men, so don't be surprised. And use discernment. Just because Caiaphas said something right doesn't mean he was righteous. Just because Balaam says something right doesn't mean he was righteous. Just because Judas Iscariot says something right doesn't mean he was righteous. Just because many people say something right does not mean the many are righteous. Balaam, in Numbers 24, verse 2, it says the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God came upon Balaam in Numbers 24, 2. In Joshua 24, 10, it says that he wanted to curse the people, but God says he had to bless you. He had to bless you. That means God made Balaam bless Israel when Balaam's intention, his own will, and he was a hireling because the kings of Moab and Midian hired him to curse Israel. This hireling wanted to curse Israel, but he had to bless Israel, according to Joshua 24, 10. We also know that in Numbers 31, 8 and 31, 16, that Balaam was killed by the people of Israel so that Israel knew his true character. Eventually, when they had war against Midian, Balaam was there, caught up in that war, and they seized Balaam, they caught him, and put him to death. Numbers 31, 8 and 16. They put him to death. Israel and Moses knew he was a wicked, evil man. However, God used him to say something good to bless Israel instead of cursing him. We have that confirmed in 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, 15 and 16. 2 Peter 2, 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, describing false teachers and false prophets, false brethren. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. This is recorded in Numbers 22. That a donkey that doesn't know how to speak was commanded to speak by God to restrain the madness of this false prophet. And in Jude 11, Jude mentions him 
as among the false teachers of old. Jude 11, he says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Another example is Judas Iscariot. Didn't Judas Iscariot preach the gospel? Did Judas Iscariot live righteously for a while? Yes. Didn't Judas Iscariot perform miracles? Yes. Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 1 to 4 explains. Matthew 10, 1 to 4. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Unclean spirits are demons. To cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And who is included among these 12 disciples? In verse 4, it says, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. That means Judas was commissioned to have power over demons and to heal people of their diseases, and then also we know to preach the gospel, because it says in verse 7, he sent them out to preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the gospel. Judas preached the gospel. But was Judas Iscariot saved, ever saved, or lost, and always lost, and now even suffering? John 6, John 6, 66, John 6, 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus is alone with the twelve. He asks the twelve about whether they want to go away too because of Jesus' difficult, hard words. And Peter says no, basically, in verses 68 to 69. And in fact, that Jesus is the only source of eternal life and that they believe in him. They believe he is the Holy One of God. Christ Jesus knows that about Peter and he knows that about the other 10. Peter and the 10, 11, he knows that. But Christ also says that one of them is a devil. Though he chose 12 to follow him and 12 to be commissioned by him, all 12 are not saved by him. One is a devil, a demon, the one who would betray him. Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. We pick it up in John chapter 13. John 13. When Jesus washes their feet, John 13, 10. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. One was unclean. Eleven were clean. One was unclean, meaning unsaved. 
unsaved. 13.18 I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is the Last Supper and the Passover time. And someone who ate with him regularly and will eat the last meal with him will lift up his heel against Christ to fulfill Scripture. The Scripture predicts it, and then it happens in history. And lastly, on Judas 17, 12, John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Only one of the twelve perished. The others were guarded, and ultimately receive eternal life forever and ever. But one of them is the son of perdition, son of destruction, son of punishment, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He speaks of Judas' eternal destiny in the past tense. He perished, yet he didn't die yet. He wasn't eternally punished yet, but he is in the will of God, just as the eleven were guarded according to the will of God. Now, someone might say that, yes, Balaam, yes, Judas, but this does not happen commonly. It's not common for people to say the right things and to live in the right way temporarily. It's not common for that to happen, to be actually lost or be actually unsaved forever and ever. It doesn't happen commonly. It does happen commonly. And the New Testament says it. In fact, Christ our Lord says it in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, when he taught us the narrow gate and the narrow way, when he taught us that, that small gate and narrow way, when he taught us to check one another by our fruit, when he taught us that, he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, right? Many people say, Lord, Lord to Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many say, Lord, but they don't do the will of the Father in heaven. They don't obey him. They don't bear fruit. They don't please him. They don't want to please him. They don't love his righteousness. They don't reject their sin. What do they do? 22. Many, there's our word. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. People will say, I used your name and I prophesied. I used your name and cast out demons. I used your name and performed many miracles. Do they belong to God? Do they belong to Christ? Does Christ know them because they did those things? No. 
he said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. You never belonged to me. You were never saved. You were never redeemed. You were never one of mine. You pretended to be one of mine, but you never were one of mine. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And where? Matthew 25, 41 and 46. The eternal fire, eternal punishment. That's where they depart. That's where they go. So then, we should not have a wrong view, erroneous view of leaders and people merely because of their position. We must be like the Bereans and use discernment, use the word of God to test them. And if they are right, then believe they're right. If they are wrong, then don't believe they're wrong. One more point to make. And these are related, interrelated. This fact is found in verses 49 to 52. John 11, 49 to 52. Based on God's supreme will, His sovereign will, His all-powerful will, God predetermines who will be saved among Jews and Gentiles. They eventually put faith in the death and resurrection of Christ and his death, his death, his atonement on the cross only benefits this group of the elect of God forever. He died for them. He died for them to receive eternal life. That's what is taught in verses 49 to 52. That's what this scripture is teaching and that's what other scriptures teach. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, not the sheep and the goats, 10, 16. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Christ and the Father are fully in control of who will benefit by the death of Christ. The sheep. 10.26, John 10.26 to 30. Jesus answered, but you do not believe. 10.26, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. He died for the sheep. If he died for the sheep, the sheep believe and the sheep will hear his voice. The sheep hear his voice, the sheep believe. Those who are not his sheep do not believe and do not hear his voice. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together 
against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Whatever God's hand and purpose predestined to occur, that's what the wicked men did. But God was not out of control. The situation was not out of control. It had for its purpose to benefit us. That's how we are benefited. That's why it said in, in Acts twenty twenty eight, which we read earlier, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church with his own blood. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God caused our iniquity, the sheep's iniquity, to fall on him. And it's only the sheep that would pray a prayer like Isaiah 53, 6 to God, saying, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Wicked people don't pray to God like that. But the church of God prays that way and acknowledges to God that you caused our iniquity to encounter Christ, to fall on Christ, to be placed on Christ. Isaiah 53.10 The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. God the Father delighted in putting him to grief if he would render himself as an offering for us, as a guilt offering for us. And that's what he did. He died in our place. On purpose, intentionally, he died for the nation. He died for the sheep. He died for the children of God. He died for the church. He did not die for everyone else so that they might benefit and go to heaven. He died for us. He obtained, he acquired, and then by faith in him, that redemption that he has is reckoned to our account. We are reckoned righteous by faith in him. Whatever God does will be accomplished in our life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen.